Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 96 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and the Waco siege that resulted in a Texas apocalypse. My name is Don Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Don. On April 19th, 1993, 26 years ago this month, Federal law enforcement authorities stormed a religious commune outside Waco, Texas. The commune was run by a group known as the Branch Davidians, and it was led by David Koresh, who some called a sinful messiah. The attack resulted in the deaths of more than 70 people, including many children. In the aftermath of this horrible event, a series of government investigations followed. But the results of those investigations have been challenged with allegations of severe misconduct by high government officials, cover-up, and conspiracy. What's the truth about the Waco siege? Who were the Branch Davidians? What did David Koresh believe? Could the deaths have been avoided? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, we want to begin this episode by issuing a caution. What do we need to say? This episode is going to be very compelling, but it may not be for all listeners. As always, we're going to keep things general. We won't be going into gory details, but we will be covering some facts that are disturbing, both about the Davidians and about what federal law enforcement did at the time. Uh, Consequently, listeners should be advised and especially parents making decisions for their family. Also, the structure of this episode will be a bit different than normal. Usually we have background on a mystery, then we look at the theories about it, and then consider the theories from the perspectives of faith and reason. But this is a really big story, so we're going to be doing it as a two-parter. In today's episode, we'll talk about the story of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, and we'll look at the competing claims about what happened at the Waco siege. Then next week, we'll go into detective mode and start sifting the evidence to try to figure out who's telling the truth and what really happened. We often begin by noting a personal connection that we might have to a story. What do you have to say about this one? I first became aware of the Branch Davidians, I guess, in February of 1993, when news reports about the Waco siege started hitting the popular press. At the time, I was living in Fayetteville, Arkansas, about 400 miles from Waco, and I was a grad student in philosophy. This was about six months after the death of my wife, and I was still actively grieving. But, you know, I was struggling to press on with my studies and my teaching assignments as a grad student at the University of Arkansas. From press accounts, I knew that there was a group of religious people who were being popularly described in the media as a cult that were holed up in a compound in Waco, Texas, surrounded by federal law enforcement officials. The standoff went on for more than a month. And one day, just after noon, I walked into my office in Old Main, a building on the University of Arkansas campus where the philosophy department was housed. And a couple of my fellow teaching assistants told me that the Waco compound was on fire. Uh, I was stunned. I had no idea that something like that would happen. So I turned I tuned into the news and found out about the violent end to the siege. 
at the time, I simply accepted what the media was saying. I didn't have any reason to suspect it was wrong. I heard occasional news stories about the resulting investigations later on, but they didn't make a, much of an impression on me. More than 10 years later, I did some research into the subject, and I started to find problems with the story as presented by the media and the government. I knew that there was another side to this story, but I didn't do any kind of extensive investigation on my own. Recently, as this year's anniversary approached, I dug back into the story while doing research for the podcast, and I was shocked by what I found. This episode and next, we'll be presenting you with my findings. All right, let's start at the beginning. Who were the Branch Davidians? They're an offshoot of an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists are a group of Protestant Christians that were established around 1863. They're called Adventists because they believe that the second coming of Jesus or his second advent will happen in the near future. They're called Seventh-day because they believe in worshiping God on Saturday, the seventh day, instead of on Sunday, like most Christians. One of their founders was a woman named Ellen Gould White, who was regarded as a prophetess. There's also a guy named uh, Miller, who is a founding inspiration for this movement, and we'll have links to both of them in the show notes. So since they b worship on the seventh day and believe that the, the second advent is near, that's why they're called Seventh-day Adventists. In 1929, an Adventist convert named Victor Hautef began proposing a variant of Seventh-day Adventist theology, eventually publishing it in a couple of books called The Shepherd's Rod. Like other Adventists, Hautef was extremely interested in prophecy and thought it's just about to be fulfilled. But his understanding of this area led to a clash between him and Adventist leaders, and he was disfellowshipped or excommunicated in 1930. He continued his teaching and gathered followers who regarded him as a prophet, just as Ellen Gould White had been for mainstream Adventists. In 1934, he founded an organization popularly called The Shepherd's Rod after his books, since they didn't have a lot of money, though, they decided to purchase land for a headquarters in what was then a rural area. So they bought property outside Waco, Texas, and started building a commune they referred to as Mount Carmel, after the place that Elijah called the Israelites back to worshiping God. And it seems like that may have been in part a critique of the main Seventh-day Adventist church, which they had believed had become too worldly. So they're like the new Mount Carmel. Uh, although insiders still often called it the rod after the shepherd's rod, in 1942, Hautef's organization changed its name to Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. What does Davidian mean here? It's a reference to King David. The Davidians believe that they're announcing and helping to bring about the restoration of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So they call themselves Davidians. And then where does the term branch come in? In 1955, uh, when the Davidians were at the height of their popularity with maybe 100,000 followers, Hautef unexpectedly died. Afterwards, there was a struggle for control of the movement, and it ended up splitting into several groups. For a time, the main group was led by Hautef's widow, Florence. She claimed that her husband had predicted the 42-month period mentioned in Revelation 11 would begin in 1955 and end on April 22, 1959. 
but a man named Benjamin Roden opposed this prediction. He also reported receiving revelations from God telling him that he should be the leader of the group. So he founded an offshoot of the group known as the Branch Davidian. So this is why they're an offshoot of an offshoot. The term branch is a reference to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. It contains a couple of passages that refer to a figure symbolically named the branch. So the branch Davidians are an offshoot of the Davidians who are an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists. When the predictions that Florence Houteff made in the name of her husband didn't materialize in 1959, her influence began to wane, and Benjamin Roden and the Branch Davidians ended up in control of the Mount Carmel commune outside Waco. Roden himself passed away in 1978, and his widow Lois began leading the organization. But there was some tension in the movement because Lois's son, George, was also prominent as a leader. And this is the point where a man who is very important for our story enters the picture. His name was Vernon Howell. And so who was Vernon Howell? He was born in Houston, Texas in 1959 to a 14-year-old single mother. He never met his father. His early life was rough, and when his mother was 18 and he was four, she placed him in the care of his maternal grandmother. His mother came back when he was seven after having married a carpenter, and about the same time, his mother and his new stepdad then had a, another son named Roger, so Vernon now had a brother. Vernon was a lonely child, and he suffered from dyslexia, which is a learning disorder that makes it hard to read. I can sympathize with that because I was diagnosed with dyslexia as a child also. So you heard it here, folks. Jimmy Aiken has a learning disability, and I had to work my tail off to overcome it. But back to Vernon's story. As a young man, he had a born-again experience in a Southern Baptist church. But he then returned to the church of his mother, which was Seventh-day Adventist. In 1981, three years after Benjamin Roden's death, Vernon joined the Branch Davidians and moved to the Mount Carmel commune outside Waco, where he played guitar and sang in church services. In 1983, Vernon began to report receiving revelations from God, so he too was now functioning as a prophet, and Lois Roden let him give his own message, called the Serpent's Root, to the Branch Davidians. Around this time, Vernon got married to a woman named Rachel Jones. Vernon also came into conflict with Lois's son, George, who was also trying to emerge as a leader, and a power struggle ensued. At one point, George forced Vernon and his followers out of Mount Carmel at gunpoint, and they took to living in buses and tents in Palestine, Texas, uh, 90 miles away in the piney woods of East Texas, actually near where my family property is. And yes, Palestine, Texas is pronounced Palestine. Uh, that lasted for about two years. Uh, Vernon also started to gather new followers from California, England, Australia, and Israel. He himself went to Israel, where he had a vision telling him that he was a modern-day Cyrus. A modern-day who? Cyrus, meaning Cyrus II or Cyrus the Great. 
He was a king of Persia who reigned from 559 BC to 530 BC, and he's a very important figure in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll remember the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem around 605 BC, destroying the temple and taking many of the Jewish people into captivity, starting the Babylonian exile. Well, in 540 BC, Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to their land and begin rebuilding the temple. He thus ended the Babylonian exile. Despite the fact he was a pagan, he supported the Jewish religion, and the Old Testament regards him as a good guy, at least on balance. In fact, Isaiah chapter 45 says that Cyrus was anointed by God to conquer Babylon and restore the fortunes of his people. And since he was God's anointed leader for this purpose, Isaiah directly refers to Cyrus as God's anointed one. And you know what? English word we get from the Hebrew term for anointed one. Messiah. Right. The Hebrew term Mashiach gets brought into English as Messiah. Also, the Greek word for Mashiach is Christos, giving us the English word Christ. So when Isaiah 45.1 states, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, it refers to Cyrus as his anointed one, Messiah, or Christ, depending on what translation you're looking at. And this brings out a point that a lot of Christians aren't aware of. We're so used to thinking of Jesus as the Christ that we forget the term was already in use before Jesus. Anybody who was anointed, physically or metaphorically, could be described as a Mashiach or a Christos. And anybody who God anointed for a particular purpose was a Mashiach or Christos for that purpose. Uh, God anointed Jesus to have the ultimate purpose of saving mankind, so he's the Christ in the ultimate sense. But there are also lesser Christs that God anointed for lesser purposes. One of them was Cyrus the Persian, who God anointed to restore the fortunes of his people and in the Babylonian exile. And when he was in Israel, Vernon Howell thought God was telling him he was a modern-day Cyrus? Yeah, and what happened to him wasn't unique. Over the course of time, there have been a lot of people who've uh, gone to Israel or Rome or Mecca and gotten the idea that they are an important religious figure, like Jesus Christ or at least a Christ. It's a delusion that's known in psychology as the Jerusalem Syndrome. In Vernon's case, he concluded that he was supposed to play a big role in fulfilling prophecy and helping to restore the Davidic kingdom. He thought for a time that he might do this in Jerusalem and that it might involve his being martyred in Israel. But eventually he concluded that he needed to help bring in the kingdom from the United States. So to play with our geography terms a little bit, he wouldn't be bringing in the kingdom over in Palestine, but a little bit closer to Palestine. In any event, he returned to Texas, where he resumed his rivalry with George Roden. George's mother, Lois, had died in 1986, and by 1987, George's popularity with the, the Branch Davidians was on the wane, while Vernon's popularity was on the rise. To settle their rivalry, George challenged Vernon to a duel of miracles, challenging him to raise a dead person back to life. So George exhumed a corpse for purposes of this challenge, and instead of engaging in the miracle resurrection duel, Vernon reported him to the authorities for illegally exhuming a body. Clever. And, yeah, and he <laughs> gave the police a photo of a casket draped of the casket uh, draped in an Israeli flag. But the police said that they needed a photograph of the corpse 
as proof. So Vernon and seven armed followers broke into the Mount Carmel commune to get the needed proof, but George caught them and a gunfight broke out. When the sheriff arrived, he found that George had received a minor gunshot wound and was pinned down behind a tree. Vernon and his followers were then arrested and charged with attempted murder. But at the trial, Vernon explained that they had broken into the facility to get proof against George for the police, as you do, and the court acquitted his followers of the charge of attempted murder. Vernon's own case ended in a mistrial and he was released. Meanwhile, George was having his own dispute with another figure of prophecy. A man named Wayman Dale Adair was claiming to be the true Messiah. And so, in 1989, George killed him with an axe blow to the back of his head. George was then declared insane and confined to a psychiatric hospital in Big Spring, Texas. That meant that he couldn't take care of the Mount Carmel commune anymore. Uh, he'd rented it out to other people, but he owed thousands of dollars in back taxes on the property. And this gave Vernon and his followers an opportunity to get back what they regarded as their spiritual home. Vernon was able to raise the back taxes and reclaim the property. Once they were in charge of Mount Carmel, they discovered that the people George had been renting it to were running a meth lab there. So they called the police and asked them to remove the meth lab, which the police were happy to do. You know, police like doing that kind of thing. So how did Vernon go about his plan to help restore the Davidic kingdom? In August of 1989, he released an audio tape called New Light, in which he said that he'd been ordered by God to procreate with the women of the group to build the new house of, uh, the new house of David. He was supposed to have 24 children who would be the 24 elders that surround God's throne in Revelation chapter 4, and they would then rule over the kingdom. But a single woman couldn't have 24 children, at least not in a short period of time, so he needed to marry multiple women. And since many of the women on hand were married to other men in the Branch Davidian group, they needed to separate from their husbands and marry him instead. Their husbands also would need to practice continence. Oh, and so did everybody else. All of the men and even the women that David wasn't going to be married to. Everybody needed to be con continent. He was the only man who was allowed not to practice continence because not being continent would distract people from pursuing spirituality. I should note that this is a common thing with fake religious leaders. They often give themselves special privileges of this sort. Thus, Muhammad got to take more wives than anyone else, and Joseph Smith got to take multiple wives too, even though that privilege was later extended to other Mormon men. This is a notable point of contrast with Jesus, who himself practiced celibacy, but did not expect his followers to give up marriage. So Jesus is holding himself to a higher standard than everybody else, whereas with these fake religious leaders, they're the ones who get special privileges. Ultimately, uh, Vernon did not achieve his goal of having 24 children. He only managed to have 18 children with the Branch Davidian women, counting two unborn children uh, by the time he died. And then in 1990, Vernon legally changed his name. What did he change it to? He was supposed to be bringing in the Davidic kingdom, so he took the first name David. Also, he'd had that vision in Israel telling him he was a modern-day Cyrus. Cyrus's name in Old Persian is Quraysh, and this got brought over into Hebrew as Koresh. So Vernon Howell legally changed his name to David Koresh. And at this point, 
He had just under three years to live. All right, I want to take a break right now and interrupt this compelling story to do something very important, which is to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Kimberly P., Aaron C., Stephen F., Father Christopher V., and Margaret B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, uh, Jimmy, back to the discussion of the David Koresh. We've just said that Vernon considered himself a modern day Cyrus, but some reports suggested he thought himself to be Jesus Christ. Is that accurate? No, it appears that this was a charge used to blacken his name, but it also does have a basis in something he did say. Koresh spoke of himself as a son of God, and to most people's ears, that phrase means Jesus Christ. But just like we noted that the biblical term for Messiah can be applied to more than one person, so can the phrase son of God. Uh, In fact, we talked about several ways it's used in the Bible in episode 87 on the Nephilim. You know, for example, it gets used for angels. It also gets used for the Israelite king, like in Psalm 2, which says, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I've begotten you. So there God is talking to the king of Israel, declaring him to be his son. Also, in a verse that was important to Koresh, Hebrews 7.3, it says that since Melchizedek wasn't a priest by the Old Testament, Jebusite priest Melchizedek wasn't a priest by virtue of being of the tribe of Levi, so Jesus could be a priest without being a Levite. And so Hebrews says Melchizedek was, quote, made like unto the Son of God, close quote, meaning Melchizedek was like Jesus in that he didn't become a priest by virtue of his ancestry. So you could have other people who were like unto the Son of God, and that's what David Koresh thought he was. He didn't think he was Jesus, but similar to him in some ways. Here's how Waco survivor David Thibodeau describes Koresh's beliefs about himself. David believed he was the incarnation of the sacrificed lamb spoken of in Revelation, the lamb that was slain to receive power, who took the mysterious book from God's hand and proceeded to unlock the seven seals described in Revelation one by one. He made it clear that he was not a resurrected Jesus, but an anointed one, a Hebrew term referring to the biblical ceremony in which oil is poured over the head of a priest or king. David said he followed Jesus and his predecessor Melchizedek, a priest who was a contemporary of Abraham, made like unto the Son of God. David argued that since the Messianic Melchizedek had lived 2,000 years before Jesus, another prophet could appear 2,000 years after. So Koresh didn't think he was Jesus Christ. He thought he was an important but lesser figure who, like Melchizedek, also could be compared to the Son of God. He was a Son of God in a lesser sense and a Messiah in a lesser sense. And because he was lesser, he could also be a sinner, which he freely admitted he himself was, just like Melchizedek and Cyrus were sinners. This led to the local press in Waco calling David the sinful Messiah. Koresh also thought that he was, uh, as Thibodeau said, the lamb from Revelation who would be slain but able to open the seven seals of the scroll in God's hand, and that suggests he was thinking he may be martyred. Finally, uh, Koresh thought that he was also the seventh angel from Revelation who blows the last trumpet in that book. How did things start to go bad for David Koresh? You'll remember that David needed to take extra wives so he could have 24 children. 
Well, they weren't all 18 years old. Some of them were younger than that. And this led to a tangled legal situation because even though he didn't marry them in a civil ceremony, they could be considered common law wives. Common law spouse is one that you have where you regard yourself as married even though you haven't had a ceremony. And common law marriages are have legal standing in a lot of states. So in Texas, you can get married at age 14 with your parents' permission. So you don't have to be 18 if you have your parents' permission. And David's teenage brides did have their parents' permission. On the other hand, since these were informal marriages, there was no paper trail on them, which would make it hard to prosecute in court for bigamy, or at least so I understand. Uh, so you've got this tangled situation of what's the legal status of these unions? The county sheriff, a man named Jack Harwell, investigated the situation, and he concluded that nobody was being forced to do anything against their will. And given that, the legal situation was murky enough that they didn't have a case they could prove in court. So they couldn't nail him for underage stuff or bigamy. It kind of falls through some of the cracks, and so no charges were filed. Weren't there also allegations of child abuse against Koresh? Yeah, some of the Branch Davidians had broken off and gone to Australia, and they had a really bitter rivalry with Koresh. They initiated charges of child abuse, meaning physical abuse, not sexual, and the authorities looked into it. The members who survived the Waco siege utterly deny these charges to this day. They claimed that the community placed an extremely high value on the children who were, you know, their hope for a prophetic future, and they would never abuse them. If a child misbehaved seriously enough, they would sometimes give spankings. And I know that many parents today don't like spankings, but they were normal when I was growing up. You know, I was occasionally spanked when I was a small child, as were most kids, and it didn't cause me permanent harm. So, you know, whether you like the idea of spankings or not, it's not automatically a form of child abuse. You may think that it's sometimes appropriate or that there are better ways of disciplining a child, but it doesn't need to cause permanent harm. In any event, Koresh had a very strict rule that spankings must never be given in anger. He wanted, if, if a parent was going to give a spanking to a child, he wanted the parent to cool down first. And if he thought the parent was angry when administering discipline, he would come down hard on the parent. So this was a protective rule to keep all discipline moderate with the children. Child Protective Services came out and investigated the situation in February of 1992, and they made more visits as spot checks, you know, showing up to surprise them and see what's going on to check on the welfare of the children. Then, according to David Thibodeau in his book, Waco, A Survivor's Account, The Child Protective Services investigation was formally closed on April 30th, 1992. Quote, none of the allegations could be verified, the official report stated. The children denied being abused in any way by adults in the compound. They denied any knowledge of other children being abused. The adults consistently denied participation in or knowledge of any abuse to children. Examinations of children produced no indication of current or previous injuries, end quote. But there was yet another problem brewing for Koresh, one that led to an investigation by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF. Why did they start investigating him? The 
Operating expenses for Mount Carmel were about $15,000 a month, or about $125 per person living there. And that's quite a modest amount, even for people living in a commune. But they still needed to bring in money. Some of this came from members who had jobs on the outside. Members included a computer programmer, a lawyer, a mailman, and some landscapers. And one ran a booth at gun shows. Uh, His name was Paul Fata, and he would go to gun shows around Texas and buy and sell guns as a way to make money, according to David Thibodeau. The community operated a stall at gun shows, the mag bag slang for an ammo vest, to buy and sell weapons and other gear. The mag bag offered a catalog of military gear, including gas masks, MREs, flak jackets, dummy grenades, and ammunition magazines. The women at Mount Carmel, many of whom were skilled seamstresses, sewed custom-cut hunting vests, some of them machoed up with dummy grenades, for an outfit called David Koresh Survival Wear, a sexy name with more hype than substance. Paul Fata was a shrewd businessman, and he had helped make the gun business into a good source of cash for the community. But the dummy grenades that the women sewed onto the hunting vests to make them look more macho caused a problem. In June of 1992, a UPS driver was bringing a packet to Mount Carmel, and he noticed the outlines of the grenade casings in the package. He then reported it to the Waco Sheriff's Department, who in turn reported it to the ATF, and the investigation was launched. Mount Carmel had a relationship with a gun dealer named Henry McMahon, who bought and sold guns with funds the group supplied, and according to Thibodeau, On July 30th, 1992, ATF Special Agents Davey Aguilera and Jimmy Skinner visited Henry McMahon to question him about Mount Carmel's armory. McMahon told the agents that David bought weapons to resell for profit. While the agents were in his house, McMahon slipped away and telephoned David. If there's a problem, tell them to come out here, David replied. If they want to see my guns, they're more than welcome. McMahon offered the phone to Aguilera. I've got Koresh on the phone, he said. If you'd like to go out there and see those guns, you're more than welcome to. According to McMahon, Aguilera became paranoid, shaking his head and whispering no, no. McMahon had to tell David that the agents refused to talk to him and wouldn't be coming out to Mount Carmel to inspect our weapons. So Koresh invited the ATF agents to come out and look at the guns. In 1995, during a congressional inquiry into the Waco disaster, the question came up, why didn't they just simply go out there and look when they were invited? Here's part of the testimony where ATF official Philip Wanoski is having the question put to him. Mr. Wanoski, as I understand it, you were Mr. Saraband's supervisor for this raid. Is that right? Correct. Yes, sir. Yesterday, Mr. Saraband acknowledged and Agent Aguilera acknowledged that, in fact, an offer was made in Mr. McMahon's home by Mr. Koresh, the despicable human being that he was, for Agent Aguilera and the agent with him to come to the compound and examine the weapons. If they were there asking questions about those weapons, uh, Mr. McMahon called Mr. Koresh without Agent Aguilera's knowledge and said, you know, gee, these guys are talking to me. Koresh said, come and look at them. Mr. Saraband said he never once took up that offer all the way to the day of the hearing. I can't understand that. Mr. Wanowski, were you aware that there was a standing offer by Mr. Koresh to let an agent go into the to the compound and look at those weapons? I was aware and am aware that at the initiation of the investigation, uh, 
David Koresh made the offer for Agent Aguilera to come out to his place to look at the weapons. Now, at that particular point in time, the weapons in question were completely legal firearms that were purchased from Mr. McMahon. At the time they were purchased, they were Title I firearms that were being transferred from a licensed firearms dealer to an individual. Well, the evidence you put into the affidavit says that by then you had reason to believe they'd been converted Some and of, were now fully automatic and were dangerous. Why wouldn't you want to go take a look at them? I don't think any reasonable person would expect that he would show us those firearms. He would show us the ones that hadn't been converted. Well, the truth is we don't know whether he would have shown you. Got that? The weapons Koresh bought, quote, were completely legal, close quote. But ATF suspected that they may have been converting them into fully automatic firearms. They didn't have proof, just a suspicion. And rather than checking it out when they were invited, they got all secrety and assumed that Koresh wouldn't cooperate with their investigation without even trying. And it's not like other people didn't tell them just to go out there. County Sheriff Jack Harwell told them, quote, just go out and talk to them. What's wrong with notifying them? Close quote. Yet they didn't go. Had they modified any weapons? Actually, they had, but merely having fully automatic weapons was not the problem. The problem was that Koresh hadn't gotten around to filing the proper paperwork. David Thibodeau explains, As far as firearms were concerned, we had nothing to hide at that time, so far as I knew. However, it seems that during the summer of 1992, David bought from McMahon a load of legal semi-automatic AR-15 rifles and the devices used to turn them into the equivalent of military M16s. He probably intended to apply for licenses to convert them, then sell the popular automatic weapons for a profit. When it came right down to it, the only valid argument between the ATF and us was about filling out the right forms and paying the appropriate fees, not the possession of illegal firearms as such. Fully automatic weapons could be bought or converted if the buyer or owner obtained a permit from the local police and paid a $200 registration fee. So, for whatever reason, Koresh hadn't gotten around to filing the needed paperwork and paying the fee. But, in the minds of the ATF, this became an ominous stockpiling of illegal weapons. Jimmy, at this point I want to mention, listeners may wonder, aren't automatic weapons illegal now? That changed in the law, right? Well, there have been changes in the law in the last, you know, 30 years since this happened, but I would have to check on the exact status of I mean you really have to look at the wording in this kind in the law in this kind of thing because you can already see how well, okay, technically what they were doing was not a problem as long as they filed the paperwork. And there may be similar exceptions for some types of weapons these days. The the Congress and the media have kind of come up with this new category. You know, they refer to as assault weapons, but that's a squishy, silly putty term that means whatever they want it to mean at the moment. And it doesn't necessarily cover everything. So there's you have to be really careful in this area. And I don't want to make a categorical statement that may have exceptions. Okay. So how did the ATF proceed with this investigation? One thing they did was set up an observation post in a house across the road to surveil them. The cover story was that the agents living in the house were college students. But the effort was really amateurish because the college students were all in their 30s and 40s, drove expensive cars, and had Rolex watches, even though they were living in an old farmhouse. <laughs> they also claimed to be studying philosophy at a local technical college, 
whose campus they couldn't describe. Koresh had the license plates on their cars checked and found that there were no liens on them, meaning that they had been fully paid off and could not be repossessed. So these college students in the farmhouse have cars that are fully paid for. Not your typical group of college students, so the Davidians were rightly suspicious. One of the agents, a man named Robert Rodriguez, pretended to be interested in joining the Branch Davidians to penetrate the group, but clumsily gave away the fact that he was an agent, although the Davidians pretended not to notice. Rodriguez tried to trick the group into admitting that they had dangerous and illegal weapons by bringing over dangerous and illegal weapons and showing them to them. And they promptly warned him that what he had brought over to show them was dangerous and illegal. So that didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't work out too well. He eventually reported to his bosses that he couldn't find any evidence that the group had illegal guns or explosives. And he also later said his bosses lied to the public. So all that gave the Davidians reason to be suspicious. What was their reaction? They realized that they were under surveillance, and Koresh thought that they were likely to be attacked. Remember, in his theology, he believed that he and the others were going to be attacked by the forces of a corrupt government, who they referred to as Babylon, and that they might well be martyred. Realizing that they were being watched by government agents only seemed to confirm this belief. Then, on August 22nd, 1992, things got even worse. And actually, that's the date that I came into the Catholic Church, August oh, wow. 22nd, 1992. I, that just clicked for me. I hadn't realized <laughs> that in the outline. In any event, they learned that in Idaho, the ATF staged a raid on the house of a man named Randy Weaver at a place called Ruby Ridge. We'll talk about Ruby Ridge in a future episode, but for now, uh, you should know that Weaver had been entrapped by federal officials, I mean, legally entrapped, who wanted to force him to be a source for them inside the radical Christian identity Aryan nations movement. They, to entrap him, they got him to make and sell them two unregistered sawed-off shotguns. They then charged him with the offense to try to force him to be a source for them. He didn't want to be a source, and he got tired enough of dealing with them that he missed a court date. Federal agents then attacked his house. At the house were Weaver and his wife, Vicki, their four children, and a family friend. When the agents approached the house, a gunfight started, and a federal agent killed Randy Weaver's son. An 11-day siege of the cabin resulted, during which a sniper shot at and wounded Weaver as he was attempting to exit the cabin to visit the body of his dead son. A sniper also wounded the family friend, and a, a sniper shot and killed Weaver's wife, Vicky, who was standing in the door holding a baby. Eventually, Weaver was taken into custody and charged with 10 offenses, but he was exonerated at trial when his attorney argued that his actions were justifiable self-defense. He eventually sued the government, which avoided a trial by giving the Weaver family more than $3 million in an out-of-court settlement. Needless to say, the Ruby Ridge incident was a huge black eye for federal law enforcement, and that had an impact on the Branch Davidians. Now, they didn't like Randy Weaver. They were a religious commune with members from multiple races. In contrast, Weaver was associated with people who were racists and anti-Semitic, you know, in the Christian identity Aryan nations movement. 
But nevertheless, you can imagine what the Davidians thought as the Ruby Ridge incident unfolded. The federal government had attacked a family in their home, which contained four children. They had used surveillance, snipers, and helicopters. Koresh is reported to have wondered, quote, is it a dress rehearsal for an attack on Mount Carmel? Close quote. These concerns were amplified when law enforcement started surveilling Mount Carmel by repeatedly flying low-level helicopters and planes over the commune. What was David's reaction? Not what you might think. According to Thibodeau, Despite these ominous events, David did his best to reach out to the authorities. He invited local deputies to fish in our lake or join us in target practice, and he kept in contact with children's service people to assure them that the kids were happy and healthy. These attempts to soothe the temporal powers sprang from the worldly part of David's personality, the man who didn't want trouble. Also, on January 27, 1993, a long-haired, sloppily-dressed man showed up at their door who claimed to be a UPS employee and asked to use the bathroom. Realizing he was there to spy on them, they let him use an outhouse, and then Koresh called the sheriff and complained about being spied on. The ATF couldn't, couldn't simply storm Mount Carmel without cover of law. Didn't they have to go to a judge? Yes. On February 25th, they presented a judge with an affidavit uh, written by Special Agent Davy Aguilera of the ATF. Uh, this affidavit has been severely criticized, including by members of Congress. Not only does it misquote federal law in applying for permission to go in, it also has fundamental or it has multiple other flaws. For example, it selectively quotes information known to the authorities. It states that a neighbor thought he heard machine gun fire at Mount Carmel. What he actually heard was a kind of toy that simulates the sound of machine gun fire. And law enforcement knew that because deputies had come out to investigate the report. So the affidavit says neighbor says he thought he heard machine gun fire and leaves out and we checked and it was just a toy. It also tries to link David Koresh to a known drug offender. It says this guy who used to live at Mount Carmel is a convicted drug offender. Well, yeah, and it was Koresh who'd kicked out the drug makers when he took over Mount Carmel and then called police to have them come and take away the meth lab. So it, it says, ooh, guy who used to live there was a drug offender and omits. David kicked him out and then called the police to take away all the drug equipment. And that, by the way, is one of a number of charges the affidavit makes that isn't even within the purview of the ATF. They could go after him for firearm-related charges or alcohol or tobacco-related charges, being the ATF, but not drugs. Even if those charges have been true, they're not part of the ATF's brief. Uh, it also brought up the issue of Koresh's polygamy, even though that also isn't within the ATF's purview. One critic of the affidavit was New Hampshire Congressman Bill Zeleff, who stated, ATF agents responsible for preparing the affidavits knew or should have known that many of the statements they were making were false. And the agent who wrote the affidavit, Special Agent Davy Aguilera, was the same agent who had refused to come out to Mount Carmel to see the guns when Koresh invited him out there to look at them. But they did get the warrant. Yeah, they got a warrant to search Mount Carmel for guns, explosives, and the parts and equipment needed to make them. It's noteworthy, though, that this was an ordinary search warrant. It was not a no-knock warrant, 
that would allow them to just barge into the property without knocking on the door and serving the warrant. That's going to be important. So what happened? The next day, Friday, February 26th, Islamic fundamentalists bombed the World Trade Center in New York City. This was the first time they attacked it a decade before 9-11. As a result, the head of the Treasury Department, which was in charge of the ATF at the time, ordered the search of the Davidian compound called off. The head of the Treasury Department was afraid that they wouldn't have enough agents because resources were being reallocated to the World Trade Center investigation. But the ATF director insisted that the plan go forward and was able to change the director's mind. On Saturday, February 27th, the Waco Tribune Herald newspaper published the first in a seven-part series about Koresh titled The Sinful Messiah. It repeated the charges against Koresh in the warrant and demanded to know how long it would be before law enforcement took him into custody. At the commune, Koresh realized law enforcement action was imminent. On the morning of Sunday, February 28th, a local mailman who was a member of the Davidians saw agents headed towards the compound and warned Koresh. Also that morning, Agent Robert Rodriguez, who was living in the old farmhouse across the road pretending to be a philosophy student interested in Koresh's teachings, came over with part two of the newspaper's Sinful Messiah series. Koresh told Rodriguez that he knew a raid was imminent, and Rodriguez frantically drove away from Mount Carmel, flashing his lights on, uh, you know, the headlights on his pickup truck to tell his superiors that the element of surprise had been lost. This was important because, as ATF agents later said, they had orders not to conduct the raid if they didn't have the element of surprise. But they conducted the raid anyway. They knocked on the door and presented Koresh with a search warrant like they were required to do? No, they pulled up with lots of officers in cattle trailers as part of a mile-long 80-vehicle convoy, along with news reporters. The plan was to park the cattle trailers in front of the door, have agents burst out of them, then knock down the door with a battering ram and stream inside in what's called a dynamic entry. The name for the planned operation with all those news reporters present was Showtime, giving you a sense of how the ATF viewed it. But they were spotted when David came to the door unarmed to talk with them. So instead, they piled out of the cattle trailers early and ran towards the front door, pointing their guns at David and shouting, Police! Search warrant! Get down! They later creatively argued that this fulfilled their obligations to serve notice. What happened next is a matter of dispute, so I'll tell you the two sides of the story, and in our next episode, we'll look at what the evidence has to say about which side is telling the truth. According to the ATF, David Koresh closed the front door on them, and then the Branch Davidians started firing at them through the door, punching holes in it from the inside. So that according to the ATF, the Davidians started, fired first and started shooting out at them. According to the Davidian survivors, David said, what's going on? There are women and children in here. Then he shut the door for protection and the ATF started firing through the door, punching holes in it from the outside. So according to the Davidians, the ATF fired first, shooting into the compound. 
some of the Davidians then started to defend themselves by shooting back and an incredibly lengthy firefight ensued. I mean, normally firefights last for seconds. This went on for hours with both officers on the ground and marksmen up in helicopters shooting into the compound where there were women and children. I'll spare you the blow by blow, but eventually a ceasefire was negotiated and when the smoke cleared, it turned out that four ATF officers had been killed and 16 wounded, while five Branch Davidians were dead and four others wounded. In later press reports and in government statements, you always hear about the four ATF officers who died, but not the five Davidians. They get forgotten for some reason. But to let you know about them, at least three of the five Davidians were not armed or weren't shooting back. One was just standing by the front door when he was hit. Another was in his room eating his breakfast. And one was outside cleaning a water tower when a helicopter marksman took him out. It also appears that two of the five Davidians were not technically killed by the ATF. They were shot by the ATF, but the pain of their injuries was so great that they were begging to be put out of their misery, which they were. And it turns out that the ATF did not have any extraction plans for wounded officers or Davidians, and they did not have any ambulances standing by. They thought they were just so macho confident, we're just going to bust in there and take everybody by surprise. We don't need to have ambulances standing by. The raid of February 28th, though, was only the beginning of the famous Waco incident. The resulting siege would go on for 51 days nearly five times as long as the 11-day siege at Ruby Ridge. Before we go further, what technically is a siege? We hear that term a lot, but we don't often hear it defined. A siege is not the same thing as an attack. It's a long blockade of a city or location to compel it to surrender. You surround the people you're besieging and wait them out. You may build fortifications around them. You deny them access to relief supplies. You don't let them have communication with people on the outside, things like that. Or at least you don't let them have supplies or communication unless you're in control of those things. While you're besieging them, you try to negotiate with them. You may also harass them in various ways. And if they don't surrender, then when you're ready, you then you make an assault on them. So what happened after the siege began? Both sides started to tend to their wounded. Koresh himself had been shot in the hand and through the hip, and he lost so much blood, uh, he went unconscious. The Davidians thought he was going to die, but he woke up later in the day. As the two groups settled in for a long siege, though, they started to negotiate by telephone. Since the ATF officers were federal agents, that made this a matter for the FBI, so FBI people flew in and were given command of the situation. In addition to several special agents in charge, or SACs, the FBI brought in two notable teams. The first was the Hostage Rescue Team, or HRT, and it was headed by a gung-ho official named Dick Rogers, who had headed the disastrous effort at Ruby Ridge, but somehow managed to keep his job. The second was the FBI negotiation team, and it was headed initially by a man named Gary Nosner, who tells the story of what happened in his book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. His discussion of Waco is extremely blunt and forthcoming about what happened inside the FBI's efforts, and it's a fascinating read. 
very early on, it looked like the negotiators would be able to bring a swift conclusion to the whole standoff. The negotiators had gotten several children released, and on the evening of March 1st, this, the second day of the standoff, they were talking to Koresh when this happened. At 10.06 p.m. on March 1st, Henry was on the phone with Koresh when the Davidian leader made an offer out of the blue. If we allowed him to deliver a nationwide broadcast, then he and his followers would surrender peacefully. With a hand signal, I encouraged Henry to pursue this in more detail. Okay, David, Henry said, let's see what we can do. What sort of message do you want to convey? I want to speak about the book of Revelation, Koresh said. Around the room, we exchanged knowing glances. Fresh on our minds was the 1978 incident in Jonestown, Guyana, when Reverend Jim Jones coerced over 900 of his People's Temple followers to drink the Kool-Aid that led to their deaths. The book of Revelation, with its focus on the apocalypse, could be a dangerous text in the hands of a charismatic and narcissistic leader. Henry asked Koresh if what Jones had done was the kind of thing he had in mind, a farewell statement and then mass suicide. I'm not having anybody kill themselves, he said. We told him that we would consider the idea, and the next day Koresh repeated his offer to surrender in return for airtime. So, David, if you just want to talk about the Bible, how about a tape-recorded message? Then we can review it and run it past our bosses. That's okay, he said. I can work with that. And just one more thing. We want you to start out by saying on the tape that if the message is broadcast over nationwide radio, then you and all your followers will peacefully surrender. That's right, he said. That's the deal. So they had a deal. They let Koresh make an hour-long recording, a sermon about the book of Revelation and his interpretation of it. They listened to the recording. It seemed fine. They sent it over to the religious scholars at nearby Baylor University, who also reviewed it and said that nothing on it sounded like they were getting ready for mass suicide. Uh, then they got CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, to play it uncut. Koresh reported back that he had heard it and was pleased by it. They then got Koresh to agree to a plan for the surrender to the authorities. Koresh, who'd been wounded by gunfire during the initial raid, would be carried out on a stretcher by several of the Davidians. The others would then follow in small groups, marching to school buses that would take them to the receiving facility. Koresh's number two man, Steve Schneider, would stay on the phone with us throughout the process to ensure coordinated movement. He would then come out last. Koresh agreed to all these arrangements, and we brought up the buses so that they could be seen from inside the compound. The hostage rescue team, or HRT, stood by, ready to secure the individuals. I asked Bill Luthen, the HRT liaison officer working in the negotiation room, to take special care to avoid appearing to manhandle anyone, as this would be watched by those still inside. Bill was very experienced and agreed to emphasize this point with HRT team members. We didn't want any misunderstandings that might short-circuit this peaceful end to such a volatile situation. Earlier, Koresh had told us that 20 children, 47 women, and 43 men remained in the compound, and we wanted them all to make it out alive. So everything was all set. But we know Koresh and the Davidians didn't surrender. What happened? There was a delay. Nosner writes. The negotiation team waited patiently in radio contact with the frontline tactical people, as the appointed time came and went. HRT reported no movement, so we called Steve Schneider. Steve, what's going on? Everybody's lined up with their stuff, ready to go out, he said. He sounded confident, even relieved. What about David? We're trying to get him downstairs on a stretcher, but the wounds make it tough to move him. He's hurting, you know. Yeah, we know. It must be tough. Just do the best you can. 
We waited a while longer, but still no one emerged for the compound. We called back in, but this time Schneider's optimism seemed to have faded. Koresh was still coming, he told us, but this time his assurances sounded vague and unconvincing. Steve, Henry said, you really got to come clean with us. What's going on? We've delivered on everything we'd promised. Everybody's standing by. David just wants to give everyone a final Bible study lesson before coming out, he said. This sounded like something Koresh would do, so we regained some measure of hope that things were still on track. More time passed, and we called in yet again at 5.59 p.m. and spoke to Schneider. The Lord spoke to David, he said. The Lord told David to wait, not to come out. So, according to Koresh, the reason they didn't surrender early on was because God told him to wait. Notice, he didn't say God told him not to surrender. He said God told him to wait to surrender. So this wasn't a prohibition on surrendering, it was a delay. What was the FBI's reaction? To put it mildly, they were unhappy. Nosner writes, I went into Jamar's office to explain what had or had not happened, and sitting in a chair in front of his desk was Dick Rogers. Both were visibly angry. I reminded them that we had warned them that this kind of thing could happen, but that it shouldn't alter our approach. They listened, but I could see that they'd already decided that they wanted to punish Koresh. It became clear to me that their decision was based on a strong emotional response to what Koresh had done. This joker screwing with us, Roger said. It's time to teach him a lesson. I don't think that's going to advance our cause, I said. It doesn't matter if Koresh is jerking us around. The point is we're getting people out of there. Rogers and I were talking past each other, both trying to influence Jamar, but his body language showed he agreed with Rogers. My people can get in there and secure that place in 15 minutes, Rogers said. Still too soon for that, Jamar said. But I agree, it's time to teach him a lesson. And as they settled in for a longer siege, this conversation revealed the basic problematic dynamic that would govern the FBI's actions over the next 50 days. How did that dynamic work? The basic problem Nosner identifies in his book is that the hostage rescue team and the negotiation team had diametrically opposed approaches to the situation. Nosner and his negotiators wanted to treat Koresh gently and make incremental progress in getting people out, while Rogers and his rescuers wanted to punish Koresh in hopes that he would suddenly surrender. And the special agent in charge, Jeff Jamar, wouldn't commit to a single strategy. Instead, he approved both plans and let them proceed at the same time so the teams kept tripping over each other. The negotiating team was trying to build trust and cooperation with Koresh in hopes of getting him to surrender. They were using what they called a trickle-flow-gush strategy. Uh, at first, they'd get a couple of individuals out here or there. Then they hoped that larger groups would start coming out. And they figured that at some point, to retain the respect of his remaining followers, Koresh himself would lead all the remaining people out rather than be left alone. So trickle, flow, gush. And the approach was working. By talking respectfully to Koresh and his deputy, Steve Schneider, they were actually getting people to come out of the compound, starting with children. They got the trickle. Every day or so, Koresh would release a couple more children. Then a couple elderly women came out. Then a few younger adults. And then the flow started to happen. Uh, one day, seven adults came out together because Koresh had insisted he wasn't keeping anybody against their will. And at a certain point, they had gotten 35 people out, 20 children and 15 adults. Could the gush be far behind with Koresh himself leading out the remaining followers? Well, it could, because all the time the negotiators were trying to talk nice to Koresh, 
and having success when they did so, Dick Rogers of the hostage rescue team was wanting to put pressure on the Davidians by being aggressive and taking punitive actions. So they started driving armored Bradley vehicles, this is a kind of tank, onto the Davidian property as a show of power, even though one of the terms of the ceasefire had been that they withdraw from the site. They violated that. They started turning on and off the electricity in the, in the compound to mess with the Davidians. And the first time they did that, it came right after the negotiators had delivered milk to the commune so they could feed the babies inside. And the Davidians were outraged. I mean, how are they supposed to keep the baby's milk from spoiling without electricity? So the hostage team then started using psychological warfare tactics by shining high-powered lights into the compound at night and playing incredibly loud music and sounds to keep everybody awake. David Thibodeau describes it this way. It is hell. Day and night booming speakers blast us with wild sounds, blaring sirens, shrieking seagulls, howling coyotes, wailing bagpipes, crying babies, the screams of strangled rabbits, crowing roosters, buzzing dental drills, off-the-hook telephone signals. The cacophony of speeding trains and hovering helicopters alternates with amplified recordings of Christmas carols, Islamic prayer calls, Buddhist chants, and repeated renderings of whiny Alice Cooper and Nancy Sinatra's pounding, clunky lyric, These Boots Were Made for Walking. Through the night, the glare of brilliant stadium lights turns our property into a giant fishbowl. The young children and babies in our care, most under eight years old, are terrified. You may wonder, why would they even have some of those sounds like dying rabbits? Turns out hunters use those to attract coyotes. Oh, and if you haven't heard the song These Boots Were Made for Walking in a while, here's one of the lyrics of that song. One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you. So you can imagine what the Davidians thought that signaled about the authorities and what they were intending to do to them. And of course, you can also imagine how this undermined the negotiators' efforts to convince them to trust enough to surrender. The hostage rescue team also had the armored vehicles go onto the Davidians' land and start destroying and then removing their property. FBI negotiator Nosner writes, SAC Jamar authorized the hostage rescue team to advance with the armored vehicles and knock down and remove four fuel tanks located on the right side of the compound. He also authorized them to remove a bus parked near the building. These removals were done recklessly with no effort to minimize damage. It seemed that the FBI was deliberately seeking to irritate the Davidians. Later, Armored Combat Engineering Vehicles, or CEVs, were sent out again, this time to remove various items from the no-man's land between the HRT perimeter and the compound. One such item was a beautiful, completely restored red Chevy Ranchero. In case Koresh wasn't getting the point as he watched from the compound, the CEV crushed the car flat as a pancake before dragging it off. To me, this was the purest manifestation to date of the HRT's frustration because it made absolutely no sense. The armed men surrounding the Davidians also started dropping their pants and mooning them and flipping them the finger. And the Davidians say that they took one of their armored vehicles and drove it forward and back repeatedly over the grave of one of their members who had been killed in the initial assault, as if the FBI agents were grinding the man's body into the ground. How did the Davidians react to all these provocations? 
not well. Each time the negotiators would make some progress and get some people out of the commune, the HRT would make a new provocation. Uh, that would get the Davidians angry, and it would set back negotiations. As Nosner writes, I couldn't believe they'd done this when nine individuals had come out over the preceding three days. Were they blind to this fact? Once again, I made the case to Jamar that positive behavior, the release of individuals, needed to be met with positive reinforcement, not humiliating punishment. This is one of the most basic tenets of psychology going back to Pavlov. If you want to train your dog to fetch a newspaper, you don't kick the dog when it brings you the paper. We had just kicked the dog for doing what we wanted. And in light of that, it's impressive that the negotiators were able to get 35 people out of the commune, despite all of the provocations that the hostage rescue team kept making. Why were the hostage rescue people so intent on provoking the Davidians? Part of it, it was a philosophical difference. They thought that by putting pressure on the Davidians, that would cause them to suddenly surrender all at once. Though from Nosner's perspective, the pressure tactics were only feeding the Davidians' paranoia and making them dig in deeper. And he was right. Part of it also was likely the fact they were a hostage rescue team. They were trained to go in and do dramatic rescues, not sit around while piecemeal negotiations were being carried, or carried on. And part of it was the fact they were angry. They were increasingly frustrated by having to wait around through the 51-day siege, so their level of frustration kept getting bigger and bigger, and they just wanted this over so they could all go back to their families. And they were angry at the Davidians, who they viewed as fanatics who had murdered four federal agents during the initial attack on the commune, even though from the, the Davidians' point of view, they were just defending themselves. Toward the end, was there any hope that the siege would end peacefully? Yes, there was. You'll remember that David hadn't said that God forbid him to surrender, just that he wanted him to wait before surrendering. Well, eventually God told him what he needed to do so that the waiting could end. In the book of Revelation, John sees a scroll sealed with seven seals that nobody can open except for the lamb that sits on God's throne. Even though he didn't think he was Jesus Christ, Koresh believed he was the lamb that would open the seals. He eventually interpreted opening them as revealing their true meaning to the world. So he said God wanted him to write a document explaining the meaning of the seven seals. And once that was done, he and his followers could leave Mount Carmel. Now, Passover is an extremely important holiday for the Seventh-day Adventists. They celebrate it. And on April 14th, the day after Passover ended, Koresh sent his lawyer a message saying, I am presently being permitted to document in structured form the decoded messages of the seven seals. Upon completion of this task, I will be freed of my waiting period. I hope to finish this as soon as possible and stand before man and answer any and all questions regarding my activities. I am working night and day. As soon as I see that key people on the outside have a copy, I will come out, and then you can do your thing with this beast. David Thibodeau says, The significance of this letter was huge. Until then, David had never written down his message, except for the notes he'd scribbled in the margins of his Bible, like Talmudic commentaries. He'd long believed that his message could not and should not be written down until he received permission from God, and now, at last, it was granted. Koresh then started dictating his interpretation of the seven seals, and his followers started transcribing his message via word processor onto computer disk. So at last, 
Koresh had announced an end to the siege. He just needed to uh, complete his manuscript on the Seven Seals. And he made sure that the FBI negotiators knew all this. I mean, he had an agreement with them to come out as soon as the Seven Seals document was finished. And he could would then come out and surrender and let them take him to jail. He even said they could come by because he was sick of this siege, too. Uh, he even said that they could come by and feed him bananas in jail. Uh, he was so sick of eating like a monkey. Uh, he was so sick of eating the military MREs that they've been living off during the siege. So soon it would be over. And what did the FBI make of this? Well, at least the key officials who were in charge of the decision making didn't believe him. They argued that this was just another delaying tactic, pointing to the fact that he'd previously agreed to come out only to announce that God had told him to wait. And they believe he'd just come up with new reasons to wait. Was Koresh actually working on the manuscript? Yes. And on the day that the siege ended, one of his followers, Ruth Riddle, brought out the portion of the manuscript that had been completed on a computer disk hidden in her jacket. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. How far did David get in his manuscript? He got as far as writing his interpretation of the first seal. But then on April 19th, four days after he announced the plan for the manuscript, the siege came to a violent end. And what finally brought that about? The ultimate decision to end the siege was made in Washington on the advice of the FBI. The two key officials were Janet Reno and Bill Clinton. Well, we all know that Bill Clinton was president of the United States, but Janet Reno was the newly appointed U.S. Attorney General. In the U.S., I don't, you know, we have a lot of listeners in other countries, but in the U.S., the Attorney General is the head of the Justice Department, which includes the FBI. And that meant that ultimate responsibility for the Waco siege fell to Janet Reno. So it was her responsibility to determine how long the siege would go on and how it would end. And it was her job to report to President Clinton on that. And you said she was newly appointed. Just how newly? Very newly. She was only sworn in as attorney general on March 12th, which was the 13th day of the siege. So she had to come up to speed really rapidly. Now, I am no fan of Janet Reno. I really did not like her. But in fairness, she was in a very problematic position in this particular case. She did not start, plan, or approve what was happening in Waco. She came into the situation in the middle of a crisis with events already in motion, and she had to rely on what her underlings were telling her about it. She didn't know a lot about the situation, and so it would have been very easy for her underlings to manipulate her. So we have to look at her actions taking that into account. What did Reno tell President Clinton? On April 20th, the day after the siege ended, President Clinton gave a press conference in which he described the key meeting between the two of them. This weekend, I was briefed by Attorney General Reno on an operation prepared by the FBI designed to increase pressure on Koresh and persuade those in the compound to surrender peacefully. The plan included a decision to withhold the use of ammunition, even in the face of fire, and instead to use tear gas that would not cause permanent harm to health, but would, it was hoped, force the people in the compound to come outside and to surrender. I was informed of the plan to end the siege. I discussed it with Attorney General Reno. I asked the questions I thought it was appropriate for me to ask. I then told her to do what she thought was right, and I take full responsibility for the implementation of the decision. I was told uh, by the attorney general that the FBI strongly felt that the time had come to take another step in trying to dislodge 
uh, the people in the compound. And she described generally what the operation would be, that they wanted to go in and use tear gas, which had been uh, tested, uh, not to cause permanent damage to adults or to children, but which would make it very difficult for people to stay inside the building. And it was hoped that the tear gas would permit them to come outside. I was further told that under no circumstances would our people fire any shots at them, even if fired upon. They were going to shoot the tear gas from uh, armored vehicles, which would protect them, and there would be no exchange of fire. I asked a number of questions. And the first question I ask is, why now? We have waited seven weeks. Why now? Uh, the reasons I was given were the following. Number one, that there was a limit to, to how long the federal authorities could uh, maintain with their limited resources the quality and intensity of coverage by experts there. Uh, they might be needed in other parts of the country. Number two, that the people who had reviewed this had never seen a case quite like this one before, and they were convinced that no progress had been made recently and no progress was going to be made through the normal means of getting uh, Koresh and the other cult members to come out. Uh, number three, that the danger of their doing something to themselves or to others was likely to increase, not decrease, with the passage of time. And number four, that they had reason to believe that the children who were still inside the compound were being abused significantly, as well as being forced to live in unsanitary and unsafe conditions. So for those reasons, they wanted to move at that time. So Clinton says he was told that no progress had been made and the FBI did not see any hope of progress being made, even though Koresh was in the process of writing his Seven Seals document and had promised to come out when it was done. According to David Thibodeau, Reno's underlings hadn't even forwarded her the memo that Koresh sent his lawyer promising to come out. They kept her in the dark. Uh, he believes that this was because the FBI was frustrated and wanted to stage a raid, and they wanted to keep Reno from interfering with that plan. So they lied to her and told her that no progress had been made when, in fact, progress was being made. The plan that Reno approved involved using combat engineering vehicles, which are armored tanks with big boom-like apparatuses attached to the front of the tank, to poke holes in Mount Carmel and then spray in tear gas from bottles on the end of the boom. They plan to do this periodically over a period of 48 hours. And if the Davidians didn't come out after two days, then on the third day, they would start firing canisters of tear gas, what are known as ferret rounds, into the building. So what happened when they conducted the raid? There are conflicting accounts given by the government and the Davidians, but here's what everybody generally agrees on. On Sunday, April 19th, at about six in the morning, the FBI got on the loudspeakers that they'd set up around the commune and woke everybody up. They said that the siege was over, that they were proceeding to insert tear gas into the building, and even though they were using armored tanks to smash holes in the wall, this wasn't an attack. As the tanks smashed holes in the wooden walls, not the windows like you might think, they started spraying gas from the bottles on the ends of the booms. The Davidians responded by getting on their gas masks, although they didn't have gas masks that would fit the children. And when the Davidians didn't immediately come out, the FBI went crazy. They abandoned their three-day plan and started frantically pumping all the tear gas into the building. 
They started firing the ferret rounds into the building. The Davidians received three days worth of tear gas in just a few hours. The FBI had the tanks start tearing off big chunks of the buildings, not just poking holes in it. Around the back, a tank collapsed a good portions of the Davidians' rear structure. And this was a very windy day, so the high winds started sweeping through the complex. The Davidians were trying to talk to the authorities, but their phone was down because the tanks had driven over the line. Around 9 a.m., they hung out a banner saying, we want our phone fixed. But the FBI did not fix their phone and continued the assault. Just after noon, a fire was seen in the building, and the fire quickly spread, being stoked by the high winds that were pouring through the building now. At this point, a few Davidians began exiting the building, fleeing the fire. At 12.12 p.m., a call is placed to the local fire department, and trucks arrive at the FBI checkpoint 10 minutes later, but they are denied entry. At 12.25, there is a massive explosion within the building, and more parts of it collapse. The FBI also hears the sound of ammunition cooking off inside the building due to the fire. Fire trucks are finally allowed through and arrive at the building at 12.43 p.m., according to the fire department logs, but it is too late. By 12.55 p.m., the fire begins to burn out, so the whole thing is less than an hour for the fire, and the compound is entirely leveled. How many people got out alive? Just nine. All adults, everybody else died. There were 78 fatalities, including 56 adults, 20 children, and two unborn children who were stillborn during the fire. You said there were conflicting accounts concerning what happened in the final assault. What do the different parties claim? The major disputes concern two principal issues. Who was shooting at whom during the assault, and how did the fire start? According to the government, no federal agents fired even a single shot during the event. But others say that, indeed, federal agents were firing on the Davidians during this event. Also, according to the government, the Davidians were the ones who set the fire as an act of committing suicide. But according to others, the government, either accidentally or intentionally, set off the fire. Right, so let's move to the theories. What theories are there about David Koresh and the Waco siege that we'll be looking at in our next episode? From the faith perspective, we'll be looking at Davidian theology and how it compares with the Bible. From the reason perspective, we'll be looking at whether the charges against the Davidians that led to the siege were true, who was to blame for the tragic end of the siege, who was shooting during the final assault, why the Davidians didn't just come out before the fire started, and who started the fire. We'll also look at what happened after the final assault and how likely such events are or are not to occur in the future. All right. So what further resources are we going to offer folks uh, as they want to look more into this? We'll have a link to David Thibodeau's book, Waco, A Survivor's Story. So he's one of the nine people who got out of the compound, and you get an inside account of the whole thing from him. Another who got out was a man named Clive Doyle, and we'll have a link to his book, A Journey to Waco. Then we'll have a link to Gary Nosner's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, and he is really blunt about the problems within the FBI on this. We'll have links to uh, pages on David Koresh, Seventh-day Adventism, William Miller, Ellen Gould White, uh, The Shepherd's Rod, The Branch Davidians, 
Cyrus the Great, Isaiah 45, and uh, the Jerusalem Syndrome Delusion. Also, we'll have links to the Waco Affidavit that got them the warrant, as well as the warrant itself. We'll have a link to what David Koresh got to complete of his Seven Seals document, as well as more on his interpretation of the Seven Seals. We'll have links to pages on Janet Reno and Bill Clinton, as well as a Treasury Department report that was done in the aftermath of all of this and a Justice Department report that was done in the aftermath of all this. Okay. So, Jimmy, uh, we also have some mysterious feedback from listeners on our previous episode on the Nephilim. Uh, the first feedback comes from Jared N. on Facebook, who writes, Funny how this topic keeps coming up in my life lately, both in podcasts and in person. The podcast Catholic Stuff You Should Know recently covered a theory on the Nephilim in their podcast about polygenism versus, polygenism. Mon polygenism versus monogenism. Hopefully a future topic Jimmy Aiken will cover in greater depth, since it seems to be increasingly murky in Catholic scholarship. They tie the idea of Neanderthal variants in our DNA to the text of Genesis and propose that the sons of God may have been Neanderthals, while the sons of men were the fallen heirs of our first insult parents. How does that square with faith and reason? Well, uh, we will indeed in the future be talking about polygenism and monogenism on the show. And by maybe coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, the question of could the Neanderthals have been the sons of God producing the Nephilim came up on Catholic Answers Live. And so I just recently and so uh, we'll have a link in the further resources to uh, to the part of Catholic Answers Live where I answer that question. What I say is I can't rule it out completely, but it seems to me there are some challenges that the view would need to overcome. In particular, it's a little hard for me to see why the Neanderthals in particular would be regarded as sons of God. Jared seems to suggest here that they might be unfallen, but that doesn't seem consistent with what we know about Neanderthals from the archaeological record. It seems like they're just as fallen as us, and they certainly died, so they suffered the effects of death as well. Brooke Kennel writes on YouTube, I think I favor a more literary interpretation of the sons of God in which there is no literal mating between angelic and human beings, but it does leave me wondering what the theological slash spiritual status of the Nephilim would be if they literally were the children of fallen angels and human women. Would they still have had free will not to sin? Well, um, everybody has, God makes sure everybody has free will. And so uh, regardless of exact, I mean, angels had free will and they could choose for or against God. Humans had free will, could choose for or against God. So if you had an angel-human hybrid, really what it would be is a human that angels had, you know, had a role in its conception on the genetic level. But the soul always comes for God. And we know that God gives human spirits and angelic spirits free will. So God would be providing the soul once again in this case, and it would have free will. Okay. Uh, Flying Car 100 writes, I've heard of the Anunnaki from Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Yes, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated is the best of the Scooby-Doo series. It's so good that while we're, as we're recording this, we're under uh, coronavirus lockdown. And so to pass some of the time, evenings and weekends, I've been rewatching Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. It is highly to be recommended. <laughs> Very good. On Netflix? Is that where yes. it is? It's, okay. uh, and uh, and it's I think it's on Amazon Prime or I think it may stream on Amazon and it's also on DVD. Awesome. 
So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, you know how you talk to yourself in your head and like rehearse conversations and things like that? Yeah. Not everybody does that. Hmm. Uh, Not everybody has an internal monologue. And so we'll have a link to a story about that. Also, uh, you know, periodically you'll see footage like from the International Space Station or something on the NASA channel. And it'll you'll find clips where UFO folks have been saying, oh, look, here's a UFO in this footage, in this feed. And uh, a lot of times it's not really impressive. I mean, maybe that's a meteor or something. Mm -hmm. Well, here's one where they actually got footage of something that looks strange. I mean, it's not just a meteor. I mean, it might be another human-made object, but it's much more, wow, what is that than normal? So we'll Mm -hmm. have a link to that uh, footage from the International Space Station. Okay. So at this point, uh, we do want to you know recommend to listeners to send us your feedback so far on what we've been talking about. You know what what do you what are your theories so far about David Koresh and the Waco siege? We want to hear from you. You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or by sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, can you tell us what our next episode on this topic is going to be about? Well, as promised, we're going to go into detective mode and we're going to be looking at the Branch Davidians from the faith perspective and then at the events of all of this from the reason perspective and try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying. Hmm. Uh, if you had, are not a subscriber to the podcast, you should b- do so. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should hit the bell to get notifications. And, of course, you'll find all those links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>